Blog Talk Radio. Billy by Goldfish and you're swimming with Cantrella here on Trippy Toll Radio and what I'm going to do for you now is going to get into our lesson this is with John MacArthur who is Christ's slave here on Trippy Toll Radio what is the distinguishing fact of Christianity in three words Jesus is Lord That is the great Christian confession. Slavery. Uh, Just the thought of it causes anger in many people. But could being a slave ever be something to cherish, rejoice over, even long for? Today on Grace to You Weekend, John MacArthur shows you what it means to be a slave of Christ as he continues his brand new series titled, Lessons for a Modern Day Disciple. 
looking at the most basic relationship all believers have with Christ, that of slave and master. And then stick around after the lesson today as we'll once again have Executive Director of Grace to You, Phil Johnson, in the studio to ask John a few questions about discipleship. But for now, follow along in your copy of the Bible or on the Study Bible app on your mobile device. Here's John MacArthur. If you would open your Bible to John chapter 15, in John 15:14, this is what you read, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. The word of note here is slaves. No longer do I merely call you slaves. No longer do I only call you slaves. I now call you friends. But you are friends who are slaves because you are my friends if you do what I command you. If I were to ask you what is the fundamental truth, what is the foundational reality, what is the distinguishing fact of Christianity in three words, what would you say? Think about it. What essential core confession should boldly mark your church? What essential core confession should boldly mark your ministry? What theological absolute should govern your life and your church? Well, if you haven't arrived there, here it is. Jesus is Lord. That is the great Christian confession. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. That is foundational. And no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. But that is not how contemporary evangelism is done. We are told Jesus wants to be our personal Savior. The ambiguity of that phrase suits the current vagueness of the gospel. A personal relationship with Jesus, what in the world does that mean? But when you listen to Jesus, at the very core and center of all of his teaching was that he is not your buddy, he is Lord. And he didn't hold back on that, and he didn't mitigate that, and he didn't tone that down, and he said that both to those who believed in him and those who did not. He is absolute, sovereign, master, and he never hesitated to declare it to friends and enemies. All who follow Jesus truly have yielded completely to His Lordship. I want to make two points. One, Jesus is Lord. Kurios. Kurios used 747 times in the New Testament. That's right, 747 times in the New Testament. Just to break that down a little smaller bite, in the book of Acts, it's used 92 times. The word soter, Savior, is used twice. 
Kurios means one who has power, one who has absolute authority, one who has total right to command. That's kurios. It is a synonym with another word. The other word, which is a synonym, is despotes, from which we get the English word despot. If we were able to come down to the finest point where these words may have a nuance of difference, we would say, as some lexicographers do, that kurios is sovereign Lord, which speaks of the fact that he is at the pinnacle, he is at the top, and despotes speaks of absolute Lord, which simply emphasizes that he is over everything and there is no other Lord. Both words, by the way, are extremely powerful words. And both words are part of the vocabulary of slavery. Both words are essential to the world of slavery. If you will look at Jude, verse 4, you will see the use of both words there used as synonyms. At the end of verse 4 in Jude, we read about our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Our only despotess and kurios. To say Jesus is Lord is to say He is the sovereign ruler and the absolute ruler. That is what those words mean. It is not to identify Him as deity in particular. It is certainly not limited to that. It is to acknowledge Him as absolute sovereign ruler, master with absolute dominion. Let me bring it down. In the culture, to say someone is Lord or despotus means He owns slaves. You're not the Lord of no one. You're not the absolute ruler of no one. And you're not the sovereign ruler over people who have an option. And you're not the absolute ruler over people who have an option. Any denial of that aspect of the lordship of Jesus Christ is heresy. The church, including all pastors, elders, deacons, and people, is an assembly of those who by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, have confessed Jesus as Lord, according to Romans 10, 9. That's what a church is. Our life is not defined by our own will, our own wants, our own desires, our own ambitions, our own self-conceived purposes, dreams, hopes. As true Christians, our lives are defined as subjected to, submitted to, under the total power and control of our Lord. That is why Jesus could say repeatedly in His invitations to follow Him, if any man will come after me, let him, what? Deny himself. It's over. It's over. You give up all control. Take up your cross. That is... You give up so much it could cost you even your life, and you follow me. That's absolute lordship. Who would really imagine 
that this great, glorious truth, most basic to the Christian gospel, would be lost in the so-called church, and we would have people getting Jesus' phone number and getting connected to Him on their terms. These are strong words. These are bold words. But let me make the obvious connection. There's no such thing as a kurios without a doulos. There's no such thing as a master without a slave. You're not the master of nobody. This is all part of slave language. One word axiomatically, self-evidently implies the other. If he is Lord, he has slaves. Jesus is Lord. Then those who call him Lord necessarily are his slaves. He makes the obvious comment in the form of a question, Luke 6:46. He says this, "Why do you call me Lord and do not what I tell you?" That is the basic understanding of the relationship between kurios and doulos. It was the most defining, simple, world-dominating idea. The numbers go as stretching out into the tens of millions of slaves living in the world of that time around the Mediterranean. They knew exactly what a kurios-doulos relationship was. Everybody knew. Why do you call me Lord and do not what I say? This is incongruous. This is ridiculous. If I'm Lord, you're a slave. That's the second point. Christians are slaves. Christians are slaves. Now, you might have a hard time kind of buying into that for a minute here. The word doulos is used 130 plus times in the New Testament. 130 plus times. Actually, if you add soon doulos, slaves together with, and some verb forms, it gets up to 150 times. And we are called in 1 Corinthians, for example, 7, 22, and 23, Christ's doulos or douloi, plural. Here's the thing you need to understand. Doulos, common word, means one thing, slave. It's all it ever means, all it's ever meant. It means nothing else. It's not ambiguous. It means a person owned. It means a person with no rights, no freedom, no standing. A slave, listen, could not own property, could not give testimony in a court of law as a witness in a case, could not seek reparations from a civil court of law because he had no rights, no autonomy, and no freedom. Doulos means that. There are six other Greek words used in the New Testament that can be translated servant. Six other words. Doulos is not one of those words. And this is what I read in what has to be the most authoritative treatment of the word available. This is the summation. It is distinct from servant. And define someone who does not do what he does as a matter of choice, but is subject totally to an alien will. He is under obligation and total dependence on his, by the way, kurios. Unfortunately, 
Though the word doulos always means this, and it appears 150 times in some form, 130 times as doulos in the New Testament, it is rarely ever translated slave. The only time, typically your English Bible, whatever version you have, will translate it slave is when it's referring to an actual literal slave or when it's referring to an inanimate object like being a slave of righteousness. When it's used to refer to a person related to Christ, they will not translate it slave. They equivocate. And you'll find the word servant and the sort of non-existent hybrid word bond servant for which there is no Greek equivalent. Why? One scholar did a survey of 20 English translations of the New Testament. Only one of them always translated doulos as slave. Only one. And it happened to be a somewhat obscure translation, E.J. Goodspeed, a 1930s Chicago University Greek, cutting-edge Greek scholar. None of the others did. Since then, I have found out that J. Adams has a little translation of the New Testament. You may find or have one in your study somewhere that is faithful to the word doulos. And I also understand, although I haven't checked out every source, that the new Holman Christian Standard Bible attempts to be faithful to the translation of the word doulos. It's unequivocal in its meaning. All scholars agree. I recently talked with um, the publisher of another new translation. We sat down and I said, what did you do with doulos? To which he dropped his head <laughs> and looked up and said, servant. I said, why? We had many discussions, we had many discussions, we had many discussions. It's offensive. I said, um, a lot of things in the Bible are offensive. <laughs> Why? What has happened is, from the very get-go, English Bible translation has shielded us from the impact of this word. And it has contributed to this necessity to battle for the issue of lordship because it sucked out the other component, slave. Slavery, the word doulos, plain and simple, indicates that you are owned. No freedom under the total control of an alien will. Absolute unqualified submission to the commands of a higher authority. When, once you get that, then you understand, for example, why Jesus said this, Matthew 6, 24. Here's the Greek. No man can be a slave to two masters. If you translate it servant, it doesn't have any impact. No man can serve two masters. Are you kidding? How many bosses do you have? <laughs> if you're talking about serving someone, you, hey, you can, if you're a waiter... You, you serve however many tables are there and how many people are sitting at the table. What, what doesn't make any sense. But if you translate it right, no man can be a slave to two masters, then it makes sense because you can't be absolutely, totally owned by two people. Only by one. Here's the difference. A servant works for someone. A slave is owned by someone. That's a whole different deal. If you're evangelizing someone and you say to them, 
I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ to tell you that he is commanding you to bow your knee to him, confess him as Lord, deny yourself, and become his slave. That's biblical evangelism. This is what it means to follow Christ. That's why Jesus said count the cost, right? You have to hate your father, hate your mother, hate your sister, hate your brother, and your own life. Take up your cross. Better think about it. You you better think about it like a man going to build a tower. You better think about it like a man going to go to war. You better make sure you can make the required sacrifice because self-denial is very difficult because self-love is very dominant. But once you understand this concept, the whole New Testament opens up like a flower. Then all of a sudden when you read you're not your own, you're bought with a price, boom. You understand it. Your your body is not your own. Your mind is not your own. It's Christ's. No matter your job, your inheritance, your influence in this life, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. That sobering reminder today from John MacArthur on Grace to You Weekend, a part of his brand new study titled Lessons for a Modern Day Disciple. John is a pastor, author, and the president of the Master's University and Seminary. Now to talk a bit more about what it means to serve Christ, we're joined in the studio right now by John MacArthur and Phil Johnson. Phil is the executive director of Grace to You. Welcome back to the show, Phil. Yeah, thank you, Carl. It's great to be here, and uh, especially for the lesson today. I've heard that the idea for this sermon came to you during a long flight. Can you tell our listeners that story? Yeah, I was actually flying to a Banner of Truth conference um, over in uh, Leicester, England, and I had that long flight from L.A. to London, and I was just studying the theme doulos, the word doulos, which is the word slave, which is used so often in the New Testament, And uh, there was a little book that dealt with the word doulos that I had started to read, and I just began to realize that this word doulos is all over the New Testament. But most of the time when it's used and translated, it's translated something other than slave. It's translated servant, bond servant, most of the time servant. But the word doesn't mean anything but slave. It means somebody owned. Mm. It's a slave. That's what it means. Why, I wondered, did they cover this up? Why did all these New Testament translators cover it up? There were, at the time, 22 different translations of the New Testament, and uh, I think there was just one of them, a rather obscure one, that translated doulos slave every time. All other English translations, 21 or 22 others, hedged on that. And that was such a defining word. That is the opposite of Lord. And master. Kurios is the word for Lord and Master. We say Jesus is Lord. We don't understand that when, when a believer says Jesus is Lord, he is saying, I'm his slave. Hmm. We don't say Jesus is my teacher, although he is. We don't say Jesus is my friend. The great confession is he is Lord. He is Kurios. That means master. That is a confession of slavery. And I think being a slave of Christ is the most defining aspect of our Christian identity. He is my Lord. I am his loving, willing slave. It doesn't end there. I am a slave who also is welcomed as a son. I am a slave who is adopted 
and becomes a son and then becomes an heir and then becomes a joint heir and then sits on the throne with him. But I think our understanding of what it is to be a disciple of Christ is to understand slave. When that dawned on me on that flight, I came back and I preached on that. It just poured out of me. And then, of course, I put it together in a book, which you edited, and the title of the book is Slave. And I remember the publisher saying, we can't title a book Slave. You know, nobody's going to be interested in this book. That's a that's a pejorative word. It's loaded with all kinds of uh, drama from the past that's going to make people reject it. But it is the right word, and it is an understanding of our Christian life that has been missing from the church, at least in the English world, because they kept it out of the translations. Yeah, in fact, uh, it's not just modern-day political correctness. You can go back to the earliest English translations, and they use the word servant, where the emphasis is on my service rather than his ownership of me. Would you say that's the, the biggest distinction? Yes, between? and there are, all, there are a lot of words for servant. That's not one. That's right. slave. If you have the words that mean servant, translated servant, and the word that means slave, translated servant, that's a cover-up, and that shouldn't happen. All right. Well, and friends, if you want to hear more about this topic, get a copy of the book John named titled Slave, subtitled The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. It's a book that examines the profound depths of this one hidden word and explains the life-changing difference it makes when you realize you are a slave and Christ is Lord. For ordering information, stay here. Carl's going to give you the details. That book, Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ, is reasonably priced and shipping is free. Order your copy by calling the toll-free number 1-800-55-GRACE or visit gty.org. The book is particularly helpful to study with a new believer trying to understand his relationship to Christ. So order a few extra copies of Slave when you call 800-55-GRACE or shop online at gty.org. Now, let me take a moment right now to thank you for remembering that your support plays a vital role in taking verse-by-verse teaching like today's, as we've looked at the lessons for a modern-day disciple, to people all around the globe. To become a partner with us in this gospel ministry, mail your tax-deductible donation to Grace To You Weekend, Post Office Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412. You can also express your support when you call 855-GRACE or go online to gty.org. Now for John MacArthur, Phil Johnson, and the entire staff here, I'm Carl Miller reminding you to watch Grace to You television Sundays on DirecTV, channel 378. And then join us here next week as John shows you how to cultivate biblical discernment with another half hour of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace to You Weekend.
God is always good. This is Ken Ham, heading up the ministry that's built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. 
Over the next two weeks, we're looking at 10 reasons every Christian should be a creationist. Number one, God is always good. Throughout the creation week, God describes what he's made as good, and at the end of day six, as very good. Now, if God used millions of years of death and suffering to bring about creation, what did he mean by good? Does God view cancer, arthritis, and death as good? What kind of good-loving God is that? But if God created in six literal 24-hour days, as he said he did, then there's no problem. There was no death or suffering before sin. God's creation was truly good, a greater good than we can imagine, because God is always good. Sign up for daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You can also view a full transcript of this program and see photos of our Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com. God keeps His promises. This is Ken Ham, President of Answers in Genesis, The Ark Encounter, and The Creation Museum. Over the next two weeks, we're looking at 10 reasons every Christian should be a creationist. Number two, God keeps his promises. After the global flood of Noah's day, God put his rainbow in the sky. This was the sign of his promise to man that he would never again flood the whole earth. Now, some Christians say this was just a local flood. But if that's true, then God has broken his promise many times. There have been many devastating floods since the time of Noah. If God broke his promise, what about his other promises? But if Noah's flood was global, as clearly described in Genesis, there's no problem. God kept his promise then, just as he does now. God's promises are true. Get answers to your questions about the flood, Noah's Ark, the animals, and more when you go to AnswersRadio.com and view a transcript of this program at AnswersRadio.com. Haiti, the largest, most powerful earthquake in the region's history. The federal judge's ruling is allowed to stand. This year's national day of prayer could likely be the country's last. Will be done. I'm blessed. 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 This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the
the wrong seems up so strong God is the ruler, yeah And though the wrong seems oh so strong
we had the song, This Is My Father's Role. And now to do a recording, this is from um, WWTT When We Understand the Text. Here on Trippy Tolerity. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, a sanctioned in Exodus 21-7. What would a good price for her be? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35-2 clearly says he should be put to death. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11-7. Can the Washington Redskins still play football? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Oh, my faithful heart knows better than to get a Bible lesson from a fake president on a scripted TV show. Notice all these arguments come from the Pentateuch, so writer Aaron Sorkin, with an agenda, ignores context and the entire biblical narrative. The reference to slavery in Exodus 21-7 is not like American Civil War-era slavery. It's protecting a woman from poverty and exploitation and giving her work. The Sabbath laws were fulfilled in Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. Footballs are made of cowhide, not pigskin. Google it. Leviticus 11 applied to ceremonial laws, and Jesus declared all foods clean, repeated by Peter and Paul. A sentence of death wasn't given for planting different crops or wearing two different materials. The Israelites were to reflect holiness in all practice in life as the chosen people of God. All the law points to Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly and lovingly gave his own life as an atoning sacrifice. Those who break God's law will still perish on the day of judgment, but those who believe in Jesus will be forgiven their sins, including the sin of homosexuality, still an abomination when we understand the text. Rooted in God's Word. This is Ken Ham, whose ministry has produced the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. We're looking at 10 reasons every Christian should be a creationist. Number three, we must be rooted in the Word of God. Now in the New Testament, Paul warns against being blown around by every doctrine that comes and goes. If we accept man's Word as truth, this will happen. Every time we turn on the news, we must reevaluate what God's Word says and modify it to fit the newest claims by scientists. But if we start with the perspective of the Bible, that God's Word is true, we can be firmly rooted in truth. The godless ideas of man will be blown away. Instead of allowing man to be our authority, we need to put our faith in the eyewitness creator who never lies and trust in his word. AnswersRadio.com is the place to go for solid apologetics content that honors and exalts God's word. Be encouraged and equipped when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. God's not to blame. This is Ken Ham a missionary with a passion for sharing God's Word with the world. All this week and next, we're looking at 10 reasons why every Christian should be a creationist. Now here's number four. Have you ever wondered why there's death and suffering in creation? Have you ever felt like blaming God for the death of a loved one or an illness? Well, when we take God's Word as history, we have a different perspective on such trials. They're not God's fault. Death and suffering are consequences of sin. God's creation was very good, but mankind sinned and the punishment was death. Where to blame? Not God. When we have the right perspective, we can become more like Christ as we go through trials. That's because we can trust our good God who's working all things for good. Sign up for daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You can also listen to this program again or view a complete transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
have you heard? The polar ice caps are melting. We're all going to drown. Ah! Oh, God already said he wasn't going to do that again. But the consumer-driven church still gets sucked into phony environmentalism, which has been branded creation care. Zondervan has published the Green Bible, which teaches us how creation cares for us. That's panentheism. The foreword was written by an Anglican priest who says there are parts of the Bible we need to ignore. So did Zondervan remove those parts from their Bible? Rick Warren, along with 100 evangelical leaders and 40 Christian college presidents, called for federal legislation to reduce CO2 emissions because that's loving your neighbor. And with God's help, we can stop global warming for our kids, our world, and for the Lord. Uh, God is the one who cursed creation. He subjected all things to futility because of the sinfulness of man. But the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God at the return of Jesus. God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. He will wipe away every tear, and death shall be no more. But you cannot reverse the effects of creation's decline. Who can straighten what God has made crooked? God told us to have dominion over all creation, to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, that includes treasuring our resources and respecting all living creatures. There are verses about that. But the only global warming the world needs to be concerned about is the fire of God being stored up for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand when we understand the text. That was from WUTT, When We Understand Tech. You can find out at www.wutt.com. That's www.utt.com. And thanks for listening to Let's Can't Show us here on Truth Be Told Radio. Now we're going to do a lesson from, this is from Wretched, and you can find out at wretched.tv. Wretched.tv, and this is pastors who inadvertently undermine the Bible here on Truth Be Told. Are you, pastor, undermining the Bible's authority in your preaching? Number one from Scott Slayton. By preaching a sermon in search of a text. Oh, man. I've never seen this done before. Have you? Have you? Uh, here's what Mr. Slayton wrote. A sermon in search of a text begins with an idea. Today, I want to talk about your finances, your love life, your children. Then the pastor searches out a text that makes reference to the thing he wants to talk about and uses it as the launching pad for the rest of the sermon. To be clear, ain't nothing wrong with an occasional topical sermon because of the need of the body. But this is the man's style. He wants to address something. Uh, how can I possibly support this with the Bible? And then he finds a text, typically reads it up front, and then says, Sayonara, number four sign the pastor is undermining the Bible in his preaching by abandoning the text during the sermon. I think I just said that. Closely related to the sermon in search of a text is the sermon that starts with a passage but then abandons the text after reading it. And it can happen by either running with one thought from the text or by talking about the text in generic ways without pointing people back to the actual words of the text. What makes this rather insidious as a pattern is that the pastor doesn't show the depth, 
the riches of the text. Can this be done where the pastor gets the main thought of the passage and really dives deeper into that? Of course it is okay. But again, if that is the pattern where we never see the richness of the language, the richness of the scarlet thread that runs throughout Scripture, then the pastor simply is not going as deep as the word goes, and that's undermining the Bible. Uh, Number three, by letting an illustration drive the sermon. And it usually involves a prop. Preachers can so fall in love with an illustration or prop that it becomes the main point of the message instead of the Bible. We've all heard these. They begin with a short talk about the biblical text, then a lengthy illustration takes center stage, and eventually the preacher arrives at his application, not of the text, but of the illustration or of the prop. Just saw a pastor do this with a bow and arrow. Uh Huh? That's right, the pastor paraded around the stage with a bow and arrow. What was his point? I don't remember, but I do remember that he used a bow and arrow. So perhaps somebody will walk away with a greater appreciation of archery, but they will not appreciate God and his word more. Sign number two, by only giving a running commentary on the text. This is another one that's very, very sneaky. A sermon that only gives a running chat on the meaning of the text is lacking. There must be an oughtness about the message. The Bible doesn't just tell us a story or teach us knowledge about God. It calls us to trust in Jesus, to worship the Father, to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, to love our neighbor and to look forward to the return of our great King. We don't teach these truths we proclaim them and that is the difference between preaching and teaching today we are going to learn about the great white throne judgment this is the place now that's teaching and that is fine and that is good and it doesn't need to have a whole lot of unction but preaching should cause the unconverted sinner to tremble at the thought of being judged by God when he opens the books and turns to the page with your name in it. Have you escaped the wrath that is to come? What will you do at the great white throne judgment if you do not have a Savior? That's the difference between teaching and preaching. Uh, Number one way the pastor can undermine the Bible by failing to appreciate the mood of the text. Oops. We should preach to produce affections that correspond to the mood of the biblical text. If we're preaching on heaven, we want people to be overcome with joy. If the sermon is on hell, then we would be foolish to pack the sermon with funny stories. We want people to feel the weight of God's judgment. The ethos of the sermon should convey the ethos of the text. We cannot and should not try to produce these affections. Instead, we pray that God would give us affections that have been shaped by the message of the text we are preaching. Pastor, have you fallen into any of those ditches? Then climb back out and stand on the authority of God's word.
Thank you very much for watching Something Wretched. If you would like to continue watching Wretched videos, would you be kind enough to become a Wretched Club member? Your monthly support keeps us on the air, and you get lots of tchotchkes and benefits. Learn more at wretched.tv slash club. Moved to worship. This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark near Cincinnati, Ohio. We've been looking at 10 reasons Christians should be creationists. Number 5. Moved to worship. When we allow God's word to be the authority over us, we gain a higher view of God and we're inspired to worship Him. But when we take man's word over God's word, we're playing God, deciding truth for ourselves. This certainly doesn't lead to a high view of God. And consider this, when we look at all God's made, what usually happens? We're moved to worship the Creator who made the stars and designed the wings of a butterfly. But if it's all the product of natural processes, even if God intervened at some point, why should we be moved to worship Him? Creation inspires worship. Learn about our full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You can also sign up for free daily email insights at AnswersRadio.com. Jesus is trustworthy. This is Ken Ham, President of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. All last week and again this week, we're looking at 10 reasons every Christian should be a creationist. Number 6. Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus treated the Old Testament as real history. He referred to Abraham, Moses and Noah as historical figures who really lived and did the things Scripture says they did. Jesus said that humans were created from the very beginning. But if humans were created billions of years after the beginning, how is Jesus trustworthy? He was either lying or misguided. When we reject the literal history in Genesis, we have to say Jesus was wrong. But not only is Jesus God, he's the eyewitness creator. We can trust what he says about origins. Want to know more about God's trustworthy word? Visit our website today at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged and equipped when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
tell the story It will be my theme and glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and His love
called it Sweet Song of Salvation. And before that, we had the song called Walk with God, and those are both like a fish. And now I'm going to play from Wretched. Let's see. This one is called Paul Washer. I learned something mostly here. to hear something you would have never imagined. This is Wretched Radio. If I said to you, Paul Washer was watching Joel Osteen on TV and actually learned something, would you believe me? Probably not. Would need way more details. (laughs) And you're going to get them right now. Paul Washer, who we're hoping is on the mend, talking about somebody which usually not even talk or think about in the same sentence, Joel Osteen. I was at a place that had cable last year, two years ago, and uh, turned on the, the TV and, and there was Joel Osteen. And I listened to his sermon and I was very convicted. I told you you would never expect to hear that. Now, here are the details that Tony was requesting, and that I think, frankly, the church is now demanding. Just let that sink in for a moment. (laughs) I do believe that the things he was saying were out of context and wrong. When he talked about all the great things that God had in store for the people, they were more material. You know, houses, success, jobs, and all this. Where I was, where I was greatly rebuked was this. He was greatly encouraging, with all his heart. He really was. He was encouraging people all that God had for them, but he was wrong about what was important. Totally wrong. (laughs) There is a reason that Joel Osteen is as popular as he is. Uh, This doesn't go back as far as Paul Washer's, Paul Washer, Paul Washer, I'm confusing Paul Washer and Joel Osteen, as Paul Washer's recollection of Joel Osteen's goes, but somewhat recently, I was at a gas station on a Sunday morning, and a young lady had Joel Osteen on. I said, why do you watch him? He just makes me feel good every time I watch him. Now, everything, and I I think this is defensible, everything Joel Osteen teaches is probably wrong or close to it. Nevertheless, he does make people feel good. Now, we know it's a house of cards. He's building a foundation on sinking sand. But could we not learn something from Joel Osteen? Could we not recognize that there is something about our preaching, our teaching, and even our demeanor that could be positive for people, hopeful, something that's even, you know, joyful? But I asked myself, how encouraging am I? How it is so, such a blessing to me when someone comes up to me and encourages me. I mean, he says, man, I'm, you're, you're doing well. 
texting. How it just just jump starts me. And I have found out it jump starts everyone else. To be encouraged, to encourage people by pointing out. Are you ready for this? The good in them. Oh boy. Got a couple of questions for you. You're not going to like this first one. Are you like Joel Osteen? You're probably going, no, no, no. No, no, just in this regard. Are you encouraging? Is your demeanor positive or is it negative? I think this is, let's use Joel Osteen for something beneficial. Let us ask ourselves, what am I known for? Everybody knows Joel is the smiling preacher. He's pastor encouragement. And when I use the word pastor, I'm using it very loosely right now. Nevertheless, he's known for those things. Should we not also be known for those things? Rightly so. Second, do your children see you as an encourager? Do they see you as one who wants to encourage them to do better, to be more obedient to God, to love the Lord more? Or do they just see you as kind of a nag or a crabby pants person? That's right, a crabby pants person. That's a, I think that might have been in the DSM-2, but they've taken it out since then. Number three, at, at work, are you an encourager? And Oh, by the, by the way, Tony and Joey, I do believe that you are doing a bang-up job. There is nobody finer in the business than you. Back to our regularly scheduled diatribe, because I'm just trying to... Oh, that felt perfunctory. <laughs> Thank you anyways. <laughs> I believe that your heart was behind it. Well, I, your... I might get better at it with practice. I have to confess, it is not my bent. I suspect it isn't many people's bent. In fact, frankly, I don't even think it's Joel Osteen's bent. It's his shtick. I'll... I I would be willing to bet some money if I weren't a Christian. You get alone with Joel Osteen and you push some buttons. You see you see Captain Krabby Pants. The DSM two will be back in action. Let me tell you something. It's just not our human bent. You pick the ratio that you like. But I think that we could all strive for something like this. For every critique, ten positives. Try that ratio in your home, because chances are. Like like me, you've got it backwards. A Paul Washer learning from Joe Yeah, that's biblical. God has worked good in his people. Paul was convinced of the goodness of the people he was writing to. God's done something wonderful in you. I can see good things in you. Even to the Corinthian congregation. Believe it or not, Paul always began with a bit of encouragement. Okay, I confess when it came to the Galatians, not quite as much encouragement there. Nevertheless, there was something of an encouragement. Who did I just read? Uh, oh, I know who. I, I'm not going to tell you the source of this because sometimes you can read a nugget of good stuff from a bad teacher and if you quote the bad teacher even though it's a good nugget people will think you're endorsing the bad teacher sort of like paul washer he's he's not he's not endorsing joel osteen by any means i just read a fellow who said that the current movement 
Regarding sexual issues and how we aren't supposed to pay any attention to what somebody's gender is, they're all man-made constructs, you are what you think you are, they said it's a form of Gnosticism. Like, they've now learned something higher. They've tapped into a knowledge that knuckleheads heretofore have never figured out. Sure, it looks like a boy. Sure, it has girl parts, but... We know better. There is no such thing. It's Gnosticism at its core. Even when Paul was writing to a congregation that was being tempted by Gnosticism, if, for instance, Colossians, always something positive. Did Paul ever rebuke? Of course he did. But we are also supposed to be exhorting. May I ask you? How much of an encouragement are you compared to Joel Osteen? Look at the church in Corinth. They're, they're having trouble with comprehending the, 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 the resurrection. Some of them are denying physical resurrection. Every sort of other thing going on. But how does Paul start that, that letter in 1 Corinthians talking about all the good that he saw in them? All that the Lord had done in I just don't think, by and large, as the the people of God, at least for myself, I don't do that enough. Wow. Brother, sister, that was amazing. I'm so proud of God's grace in you. So happy. Keep going. Press on.
secret between me and you. What they every knee is gonna bow. And everybody else will know it. to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. This week and last week, we've been looking at 10 reasons every Christian should be a creationist. Now here's number seven, death grieved Jesus. If God used evolution, then death and suffering were a part of God's original creative process. So why did Jesus spend so much of his earthly ministry healing the sick and even raising the dead? If evolution was God's plan, then death and sickness are actually good things. But Jesus treated death and suffering as intruders. He grieved over the sick and the dead. Why? Because these were intruders into his creation. It's because of sin that death and sickness, like cancer, are part of creation. But someday, they'll be gone forever. Learn more about creation versus evolution, the age of the earth, and God's word at AnswersRadio.com. And sign up for daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Jesus Conquered Death This is Ken Ham, co-author of the new book on Noah's Flood and the Ark, A Flood of Evidence. Why should Christians be creationists? Well, for the past several days, we've been looking at 10 reasons why. And here's number eight. Jesus died physically and rose from the dead physically. Now, if life evolved over millions of years and death existed before man sinned, and the punishment for sin isn't physical death. So why did Jesus have to come and physically die? Jesus' physical death demands a physical Adam and Eve who physically rebelled against God. The Apostle Paul mentions this several times in his writings. We can look forward to a day when death will be no more because Jesus came and physically paid the penalty for our sin. And then he physically rose again. Someday, we'll be physically raised with him. Want to know more about a historical Adam and Eve and why it's important? Visit us at AnswersRadio.com and find out more about our life-size Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com You wait there. Adrian, stand there for the next shot. How would you respond if you were talked to like that by a spouse or by a teacher or by a boss who does have authority over you. Imagine he or she called you into the office, sat you down, and then stood over you to simply intimidate you to be obedient. Would you be very motivated? However, I have to say I do agree with this fellow 
On one of his points, we should not come down to eye level with a child. No siree, Bob. Not for the Christian. Our position should be below the child. We should come. Oh, this is going to be interesting. We should come. Hold on. That would have been a day where I jumped off. Now, I could break a hip, get pneumonia, and die. That's the progression, and it's happened to countless people. Uh, Instead of looking down, instead of looking at the Christian position is indeed, honey, I'm a very bad sinner. In fact, I'm a worse sinner than you are, and that's why I understand you. That's why I get you. I know why you don't want to be obedient. I know why you disobeyed today. I know why you were naughty because I'm a naughty disobeyer too. The Christian, hold on once. Now I know why Elvis struggled at the end. (laughs) Oh, man. The Christian posture is the same posture as Jesus. Jesus, when he came to earth, does not look down on people, doesn't even look eye to eye. He humbled himself. He washed feet. He died on a cross for us. Nobody was ever more humble. And I would ask you the question, does that mean he lost his authority? No, this is, this is the profound nature of our God. The one who is in control of every single molecule, the one who has the right to command you and me to do everything and anything he chooses in whatever fashion he determines, instead is the humble God who prepares a place for us and then serves us a banquet. Not just prepares a banquet, but serves us a banquet What kind of God is this? It is the humble God. And when you and I humble ourselves before our children, we don't lose authority. We're acting like Jesus. And then our children will desire to be obedient to whom? Not to us, but to God. When they see mom and dad have been truly affected by the cross, the Christian method of parenting is radical, and I can guarantee you, if you think this sounds preposterous, I'm supposed to get below my child. I think that's what the Bible teaches, that we're supposed to esteem others as better than ourselves, and that includes our children. Let's say you've got a 5-year-old, and you're a 35-year-old. Who's got more sins? You do, 35-year-old. You're the bigger sinner. That means we shouldn't be haughty. We shouldn't be lording. We shouldn't be trying to intimidate our children. And if you're concerned that you're going to lose your authority, I can assure you it will actually increase as long as you tell your child to obey and submit not to you with a lowly, wretched sinner, but to obey God. This is an aspect of Christian parenting that is so easy to overlook. Just clean it up. Get it done. Don't want to come home to this anymore. You will get some compliance because you're bigger, you're stronger, you own the roof over their head, you're more intimidating, you're louder. But when your child 
flies away from the nest, and you aren't there to hover over them and tell them what to do, they're not going to obey you. May I challenge you to consider parenting from a different posture, not lording it over your child, not even looking at your child in the eye, but confessing and professing to them that you are the biggest sinner in the house who needs a Savior. And because we have one who died for us, now we need to run to him for forgiveness, and we desire to be obedient, child. Let's do that together. Not because I say so, but because God says so. Did you know that Jesus Unmasked now has a Sunday school study guide? According to the experts, Jesus Unmasked Sunday School Guide. I'm pretending to actually read that, but I'm making it up. The Jesus Unmasked Sunday School Guide is the single best Sunday school curriculum ever created in the history of Sunday school curriculum. Wow, that's what they say. Those are the same people who say that we're being tracked by the government. If you're getting ready for Sunday school, Jesus Unmasked now has a study guide showing Jesus in every book in the Old Testament. Your class will love it. They will be convinced, persuaded, and assured that the Bible is the supernatural Word of God and Jesus is the promised Savior beginning in Genesis 1. Take it from them. Get the Jesus Unmasked Sunday School Curriculum. That was Todd Friel with Wretched. Todd Friel spelled T-O-D-D-F-R-I-E-L. And that was Wretched. Never stoop to your child's devil is not Christian parenting. And that was from their YouTube page, but you could also find them at Wretched.tv, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.tv, Wretched.tv. And it's the name of Cantrell here on Truth Be Told Radio. You can find us our website at truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com, and also my website with my testimony, smilesandstuff.com, S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F.com, smilesandstuff.com. And thanks for listening, and now I'm going to do from Answers in Genesis. Jesus Conquered Death. This is Ken Ham, co-author of the new book on Noah's Flood and the Ark, A Flood of Evidence. Why should Christians be creationists? Well, for the past several days, we've been looking at 10 reasons why. And here's number eight. Jesus died physically and rose from the dead physically. Now, if life evolved over millions of years and death existed before man sinned, and the punishment for sin isn't physical death. So why did Jesus have to come and physically die? Jesus' physical death demands a physical Adam and Eve who physically rebelled against God. The Apostle Paul mentions this several times in his writings. We can look forward to a day when death will be no more because Jesus came and physically paid the penalty for our sin. And then he physically rose again. Someday, we'll be physically raised with him. Want to know more about a historical Adam and Eve and why it's important? Visit us at AnswersRadio.com and find out more about our life-size Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com. A sure hope. 
This is Ken Ham, whose ministry has produced the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. All this week, we've been looking at why all Christians should be creationists. Now, here's number nine, a sure hope. The book of Romans describes a creation that's groaning and broken because of man's sin. But Jesus promised he's coming again and will establish a new heavens and earth. The book of Revelation tells us this new creation won't have any death, suffering or tears. It'll be free from the curse. Now, if God used millions of years to create, the original creation was full of death and suffering just as it is now. So how could God have called that very good? Why then should we expect our coming home to be different? When we take Genesis plainly, the coming new creation, it'll be very good. There's thousands of free articles, books, videos, and more at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged with solid answers when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
The evidence confirms the Bible. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on why we can trust the Bible. For the last two weeks, we've seen reasons why all Christians should be creationists. Well, here's number 10. Scripture's clear that God created in six days and did not use evolution. Yet many Christians embrace millions of years and evolution because they don't want to seem to be against science so-called. But science actually confirms the Bible. Genesis tells us that organisms reproduce according to their kinds, and life doesn't come from non-life. That's exactly what we see. If there was a global flood, we'd expect to see billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And that's exactly what we see. Science doesn't contradict God's Word. It confirms it. Sign up for free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You can listen to this program again or view a complete transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Thank you for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. This is Moose Cantrell. And I'm going to do next is play another one from Wretched. This is called Why Can't a Christian Date a Frat Boy or Sorority Girl? Here on Truth Be Told Radio. I just received a beep talk, one eight seven seven two eight two beep asking about the gamer business. Should a Christian man be playing a boy's game? Okay, he didn't put it like that. I'm just tainting it. And my response is, I think it's time to set those things behind and do things that are more productive. And even with downtime, relaxation time, try to find something that is more age appropriate. That's my take. I mentioned I could be wrong. It it could happen. It has not happened yet in my mind, but it could happen. Therefore, if you would like to send an email to idea at wretchedradio.com and just explain why I'm I'm wrong, I will try to engage with it and to process this as biblically as possible. So fair enough, you you write an email to idea at wretchedradio.com, and then I will try to respond graciously, and then... I will play some Paul Washer clips where he just slams boys in their toys. How does that sound like a deal? (laughs) I won't. I'll just, I'll try to, look, if somebody has a difference of opinion on such a thing, can we not talk about something like this without calling each other heretics, getting upset with one another? Really? Seriously, if, if, if we cannot lovingly work through an issue like games and what sporting activities adults should participate in or not without getting mad, without calling one another names, without just being incensed, and then maybe just saying, that's it. You're, you're no longer on our radio program. Sorry, that was a different issue. Then, then we haven't matured very far, have we? So you send it, and I'll do my best. I will try very hard to respond as graciously as possible. Idea at wretchedradio.com. And please, if you can, bring Bible verses. Okay, bring Bible verses. I, I bring along Paul's admonition for men to be dignified, to do things that, that demonstrate, wow, this is a sober-minded an individual who carries himself as if he is a loftier call than everybody else. The comportment of the Christian man just appears to be different. I would bring that. 
Now, I realize it's not talking about gamers, but I still think the principle that in the Christian life it's time to put behind childish things, to move forward to adulthood. Now, I recognize that that verse falls short because that still begs the question, are, are games, gaming, you know, the BB, BBB, the big things, however they go, is, is that a childish thing or not? That, I suppose, is the question, and I suspect there's going to be a difference of opinion. one eight seven seven two eight two beep that's the number of the old toll-free. Should Christians date sorority or fraternity members? I'm in that situation now, dating a sorority sister. Should I have freedom or not in my uh, in me pursuing her for a wife? Okay, I... I must be really naive on this, uh, young man. I don't understand why you couldn't date a girl who's in a sorority. I, unless it's like an anti-Christian sorority? It, it, what, what, what about a sorority might indicate that anybody who's in it is not a Christian? Guys, am I missing anything about sorority? Reputation. Sor- I think the long-standing reputation of uh Fraternities and sororities is places where they are very immoral. Okay, so I guess my question would be: Is that true of all sororities? Is that I mean, is that true of every single one? No, not at all. Okay, not at all. Do we know a percentage by any chance? I have not seen the latest studies. I see. So I. I or any. I, okay, I could I, I could be wrong about this. If, if this if the stigma is that somebody's in a sorority, therefore they're a rank heathen. I'm not sure that's a correct assessment. Nevertheless, having said that, would that be a consideration because I don't want to undermine my testimony in any way, shape, or form? I have to confess, I I don't think that would be one of those issues for me. I think that I'd want to be wise, though. Let's just say there is some truth that sororities, that frat houses are places, they can be places of hypersin. I I might want to be very thoughtful about that. Why then did she join the sorority? Furthermore, you might want to ask, this this might be getting a a little bit mm, deeper perhaps, did she have to take some sort of vow? Was it a secretive vow? That wouldn't disqualify me from wanting to date a woman that was in a sorority. It it might just be an education issue that a Christian shouldn't be making secretive vows, especially if it invokes some sort of deity's name or some sort of small g god. Nevertheless, that wouldn't be a disqualifier. It would be something that I'd be interested in knowing. So I I can't think of any reason why you couldn't. If you know of something, while you're sending me that email about gamers, uh, let let me know why maybe... A Christian man couldn't be dating a sorority girl or a Christian woman couldn't be dating a frat boy, although that didn't sound very good like that, did it? All right. Hey, Todd, love the show. Just curious what you think of the dispute in ancient uh, Byzantium between the iconoclasts, people who turn icons and the iconophile, people who are venerating and making icons to the right. Uh, well, I'm so, I'm so glad you asked because... My opinion, this is one, sir. Wow, has this been debated? Now, I will say this. I, 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 either side in its extreme, I, I, I think, is, is definitely wrong. But let's start there. Now, that doesn't mean that the middle is right, but let's just start with if you're smashing.
trashing somebody's property, I don't think that's appropriate. You've got a disagreement, bring it to them, explain it to them, teach them. Going into a church and ransacking it, mm-mm. Econophiles, this, this would be more of the Eastern Orthodox position. Many of the reformers, by the way, were iconoclasts, but the econophiles would be those who, well, let's just call it what it is. It, it's not veneration, it's worship. They were love, they love the icons. There is prayer offered to the icons. There is some sort of adoration given to the icons. I think that's wrong, too. Now, the question is, can a church have any sort of visible symbol of something biblical? Can a Christian have some sort of symbol? A cross? I mean, to a degree, that's a physical symbol. I wouldn't call it an icon. Maybe you could. But it's, it's, it's a symbol of the faith. Do we believe that we can have stained glass windows? There are some people who would say absolutely not. They would, I think, argue primarily it would be making a grave an image, putting up an image that could be venerated. Well, it could be, but that could happen with anything. I could read an epistle. Oh, I love Paul. I just love Paul. And I, 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 I adore Paul. I venerate Paul. You could do that with anything, whatever the delivery mechanism is. So I, I, don't, I don't think that iconophile is 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 appropriate either, but I don't think that just because you make an image that you have to worship it. I think stained glass windows can be magnificent communicators of truth, can they not? Now, if they are set up for somebody to kneel down to give their affection, their attention, or certainly to offer their prayers to it, well, then I, I just think that that's inappropriate. But that doesn't necess- that's a sin actually. But that doesn't mean that the object itself is sinful. I think that it's the heart toward the object. Now, I'm just trying to think inside of Eastern Orthodoxy or inside of, say, different Roman uh, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox tend to be far more into the icons and the images. Is there anything that in and of itself, let's just, would a statue of Paul be wrong? Would a carving of the Apostle Paul be a wrong thing or a stained glass image, it's Paul on the road to Emmaus, getting knocked down. Would that, would that be, a, I don't think so. So even in, I, I, I certainly haven't looked at all the icons, and there's a lot of them in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I can't think of any that in and of themselves are sinful. I would have to bring it back to, I think it's a heart issue, which tends to be very much in alignment with being consistent regarding God's attitude toward our activities. They are typically Heart-driven, that's what he's always interested in. Not external conformity, not just rule, 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 but heart. In fact, speaking of that, I just in our church, a young man just went off to Boyce College. It's connected to Southern Seminary. And the, I, 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 I can't recall if it was the dean or a professor. It was, it was the address that you're all here and welcome and welcome parents. He said, we're not, we're not big into rules here. You know, that might be surprising to you, that a Christian college, we're, we're not about rules. Let me tell you what we're about. We're about every individual growing in their love for God so that they desire to behave appropriately as is befitting a Christian man or a Christian woman. And then 
others who love Jesus help those who stumble and fall along the way. In other words, they promote acting like a Christian because they are a Christian as opposed to external conformity to rules. Rather brilliant. Why do they have that? Because that's what the Christian life is about. So to iconophiles, iconoclasts, I would say either extreme is bad. Could you make some sort of an image or have some sort of an image in your church? That is between your heart and God. This is Wretched Radio. Thanks for listening to the Wretched Segment Du Jour. If you'd like more Wretched, you can listen to the most current stream for free at wretched.tv slash listen, or you can become a club member and listen to our entire archive. Wretched, reaching the lost, equipping the saints, and strengthening the local church.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.